0: May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, we're all geared up for a year of Sundays spent mostly with the gospel of Matthew, my least favorite gospel writer. Not that Matthew isn't a nice guy, nice guy, stand up guy, just a little flat. Matthew's like the auditor among the gospel writers. He's the one who always asks for the printed receipts from the baristas. He's the guy who responds to the funny joke on Facebook with three paragraphs that begins, Well, actually, here's what I mean. Matthew's principal concern is with fulfilling things exactly, nervously, with checkboxes to cross off, as though a preponderance of the facts could make you inevitably believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Every other action of Jesus in Matthew is followed by a quotation that he chooses from Scripture to prove to you that Jesus is fulfilling the Law and the Prophets unlike the storytellers who let you infer these things by, you know, a well-told story. But Mark, you know, he depicts the disciples in a constant state of confusion and panicked disarray. Matthew gets this story a decade or two later and says, hashtag not all disciples, and has them nodding in perfect synchronicity with whatever comes out of Jesus' mouth. You'll even see the traditional depictions of the gospel writers. You'll see them carved on our altar up there. John is this fierce, wild eagle. Luke is a massive, muscly ox. Mark, not only a lion, a lion with wings. And Matthew is just a regular old guy. (laughs) Even symbolically, he's boring. (laughs) It's like the ancient people who were deciding how to depict these figures were like, Matthew, not much to say here. (laughs) You, my friends, though, have been mercifully spared by our electionary committee of ever hearing the beginning of his gospel during church. It consists of 17 verses of, wait for it, a genealogy. (laughs) A great way to start a story if you ever have that (laughs) choice, skip it. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah. By verse three, you're already glazed over, staring into space. So we, thanks, Lectionary Committee, pick up on verse 18 in our Gospel today, which presents another sort of challenge. We hear the incredible story, the one that we have been waiting for, All Advent long, through these depictions of the apocalypse, through the appearance of John the Baptist, we finally get the story we're waiting for. A woman becomes pregnant by the Holy Spirit of God. And unbelievably, the only person we hear from in Matthew's version of the Annunciation is Joseph. How does this even happen? This is the story of a woman giving birth to God, and an unrelated man is the hero of Matthew's story? This is why I'm team Luke, 100%. (laughs) He has Mary herself consenting to the pregnancy and then bursting into this rebellious, scandalizing hymn that we call the Magnificat. It's, it's almost like fastidious and orderly Matthew cannot handle what was said by and about Mary. He is not alone in this. Send the rich empty away, Mary sings. And Anglican bishops told the missionaries to India during the time of colonization not to sing that in public. Russian czars forbid the song as well, nervous what, about teaching a bunch of peasants that the will of God would mean that the mighty will be cast down. As recently as the 80s, the song was banned by Guatemala's government, at the same time banned in Argentina after revolutionaries plastered posters featuring the words of the Magnificat in city squares. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, another of our revolutionaries, said it best. The Song of Mary is the oldest Advent hymn. It is at once the most passionate, the wildest, one might even say the most revolutionary Advent hymn ever sung. This is not the gentle, tender, dreamy Mary whom we sometimes see in paintings, or I should say, depicted at most pageants. This song has none of the sweet, nostalgic, or even playful tones of some of our Christmas carols. It is instead a hard, strong, inexorable song about the power of God and the powerlessness of humankind. We have a scandal on our hands with Mary. And Matthew does too. And he tries to sweep it quietly under the rug of the character of Joseph. He does have other reasons, I think, but in order to get a full and fair and balanced picture of the story, you'll have to attend the forum after this where we'll talk about the differences in the nativity stories. (laughs) For the purposes of this sermon, though, we'll move on, because even fastidious Matthew does not make everything as tidy as you might expect. Why? because his source material is scripture, which is a very untidy thing itself. In his genealogy that we missed, Matthew makes a surprising addition to the usual unbroken pattern of a man who begot a man who begot a man for the 17 verses. He includes four women in there, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. You know them, right? You know their stories. Shameful women. Our scrupulous friend Matthew can't even bring himself to say the name of Bathsheba, the downfall of his revered King David. He calls her the wife of Uriah. Each one of these women, you could argue, tricked their way into this chosen line through unscrupulous means. Tamar disguises herself as a, pro- as a prostitute to conceive a child with her father-in-law. Rahab was an actual prostitute who sheltered the Hebrew spies. The foreigner, Ruth, appeared disguised in the dark of night to unsheathe Boaz's feet. Uh, the Bible's favorite euphemism. <laughs> and Bathsheba had a habit of bathing in full view of the most powerful man in Israel. And this seems to be Matthew's apologetic recourse for the accusations flying around about Mary during his time, the kind of woman she was. So he appeals to his very untidy tradition. accuse Mary and stand opposed to the most treasured inheritance we have, our histories, our humanity. There's something deeply hopeful about this move for Matthew and for me. You know that tidy, presentable, likable person you work to present before others? it seems like God has an entirely different set of values, that God might see the real us, the ups and the downs, the good and the bad, the reputable, the scandalous, and chooses to lift all of it into his own inheritance as a human. And maybe realizing this about God, can change you and how you see another, too. Rather than be affronted by their beliefs or backgrounds or leanings or mannerisms, you could see a real person with a similarly complicated and totally redeemed lineage. Maybe if you realized that, the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, would take place for you in this way.